reading this evening is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it's on page 1155 of the Pew Bibles. We're starting from verse 1. My brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the, all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether, then, it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And continuing from verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, O oh death, is your, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, Thank you to Karen and the musicians for leading our praise and uh, a warm welcome to
to some visiting friends who are with us tonight. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 15, which, on which we're going to base our thoughts. 1 Corinthians 15. It's uh, a long chapter, 58 verses. Uh, we left some verses out in the middle, not because they, they are unimportant. They certainly aren't, but just to stop exhaustion. And as I was preparing uh, this sermon, I was asking the Lord for guidance because there's so much in it that I'm having to uh, deal with some issues uh, in a superficial way because otherwise we would be here until Easter Wednesday uh, and that's not what uh, you would want and what my voice could uh, put up with. But we pray before we study. Lord, in being raised from the dead, you brought life where there was death. You brought life that is life indeed in all its fullness. And you bring life where your spirit is. Your spirit is in our midst and in the hearts of those who trust you. And may your spirit bring life to my words and to our consideration and meditation that we may hear your word and be not only hearers but doers for your glory's sake. Amen. I want to do something a little unusual. I want to start at the begin at the ending. You see? Yeah, it's been a rough week. I've been out every night this week except Saturday. Now, I know that's what you pay me for, but we can be a bit weary, which is why this final verse, verse 58, speaks to me. And those like me who are perhaps a little weary, therefore... This is Paul's conclusion and his practical application. Therefore, he says, my dear brothers, and I, I like to keep the translation beloved. It's old-fashioned, but it's strong and it's biblical. My beloved brothers, and that includes sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Well, the, the, uh, the original uses one word, stand firm, immovable. Immovable. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Well, the, the older translations are more accurate when they talk about abounding in the work of the Lord. I should be jumping up and down now. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And as we shall see, 
in this chapter, this idea of doing things or being in vain that are nothing or that comes to nothing appears, and I hadn't realized this until I studied the passage, it appears five times in this chapter. And sometimes Christians can wonder, What's, is really what I am doing worthwhile? Is it of any importance? And if you've had a, a busy winter's work, looking forward beyond Easter to, to things getting a bit, easing up a bit in, the, in your leadership of a youth organization or in whatever other way you're serving the Lord, and sometimes you wonder, because sometimes we don't see much fruit. And we wonder, is it really worth it? Paul says, therefore, be strong, stand firm, immovable, abounding in the Lord, for you know your, your work is not in vain. Well, if that's the result of his discussion, let's get into his discussion and see what leads up to that terrific conclusion and assurance. And I've got four points, Presbyterian plus one. Okay, so let's get back to the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Revelation, Revelation, sorry, you, it's, it's obvious I've had a rough week. Okay, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse one. And the verses one to 11 here we have a firm foundation. Paul starts by reminding his readers, his readers who are wobbling on one of the fundamentals of the faith, he reminds them of the gospel. I want to remind you, my brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. There's that in vain again, to no purpose. He reminds them of the gospel he preached which they heard, believed, and took as the basis of their lives. He had to remind them of this because they weren't now as firm on it as they had been. A gospel that brings salvation, a gospel that has amazing power by the Holy Spirit. That's what he reminds them of in verses one and two. And then in three, he gives a summary of the content of his preaching. He reminds them of it. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. This is absolutely fundamental. 
And then we have a, a very brief summary of the fundamental core of the Christian gospel. What is it? That Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. That he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third, on the third day, and then that he appeared to the apostles, and he gives a list which we'll look at in a moment. Central is the death of Christ for our sins and him being raised from the dead by the Father. That's the first thing to grasp. This is of fundamental importance and we cannot wobble on this and be true to the gospel. Second thing to note, it fulfills the scriptures. Here he's referring to the scriptures of the Old Testament. And he repeats that. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And we've seen in our studies on John, uh, in, in our morning studies, how Jesus was fulfilling the scriptures in what he did and in his death and in his resurrection. And he, he says that this is what he received and was passing on. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Sometimes in our communion service, we read from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about what I received, I have passed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he relates the story of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, remember, this was at the very beginning of the Christian era. The Gospels, the Gospels still hadn't been, uh, well, if they'd been written, they, they hadn't been, if you like, published and circulated. That took time. And so, how do we, we preach the gospel, somebody comes to Christ, trusts in the words of the gospel and puts their trust in Jesus. Well then, how do you help them to grow? What about the, the, the incidents from the life of our Lord and of course, the scriptures of the Old Testament which were being fulfilled? Well, what appears to have happened at the beginning was uh, the apostles uh, began to relate their experiences and these were passed on by word of mouth. And that's how the early church was built up in time when the eyewitnesses had all gone, which is much later than this, they were put in writing, and later they were gathered together in what we know as the New Testament. But here, before all that happened, 
and this is one of the earliest uh, uh, accounts of our Lord's teaching. 1 Corinthians 11, scholars tell us, is the earliest account we have of our Lord's teaching, written before the Gospels were uh, written. Now, here is Paul receiving this truth and handing it on. You could call that, some uh, traditions we'd call that tradition. It's a tradition of handing on the gospel. And that's given to every generation to hand on the gospel to the next one. That's why we put a lot of effort, and thank, I thank God for the number, and it's more than 100, I think, people who are involved in this church in seeking to hand on the gospel through KidZone, through our organizations, and every Christian parent. That is our responsibility, to hand it on. Okay, he handed on what he received. And I've taken so much time now. Uh, yeah, I need to move. He uh, talks about the, wit the eyewitnesses. He talks about he is the last in the list of eyewitnesses. Many more than we know about, as, as he tells us here. Uh, yes, to Peter, to the 12, then to more than 500 at one time. We have no uh, information on this apart from this reference. There are lots of things we don't know, details, but we have enough information to feed us and to nurture us and to teach us how we must live. And Paul says an interesting thing. He says, I don't even deserve, verse 9, to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not, and the, the, the version says, was not without effect. Here we are in vain again. Remember that phrase, we, which we saw at the very beginning, uh, at the very end, verse 58. We saw at the very beginning, verse 2. And now he's saying, the gospel was the grace of God was not in vain, was not uh, without effect. And because it, the grace of God was working in him and wasn't without effect, how did he behave? Well, he said, I worked harder than all of them. If God's grace is working in our lives, a clear indication of that is the strength and depth of our commitment to Christ. And if there isn't that strong commitment expressed in different ways, depending on our gifts, our stage in life, and everything else, but if, if that isn't evident, it's a sign that maybe the grace of God needs to work more in the Spirit in our lives, or we are resisting this spirit. Okay. And then he, he, he says, uh, verse uh, 11, 
whether then it was I or other uh, preachers, uh, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. But if it is preached, verse 13, that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul was a confused man. They had received his teaching. They had received the gospel, the the gospel which said very, very clearly that Christ died for our sins. He died, but he has risen. And now some of them were saying, there isn't, uh, there's no resurrection of the dead. So Paul says, well, let's work out the implications of that. The implications of that. You say there's no resurrection of the dead, verse 12. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, implication one then not even Christ has been raised. It's logical. If there's no resurrection, then Christ can't have been resurrected. How they didn't see this, I don't know, but they didn't. Christ has not been raised if there is no resurrection of the dead. The implication is, why do you believe it then? And then he moves on. And if Christ, verse 14, has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Remember in vain? Third time it appears. The English translation keeps changing, but the original is the same. And and what he says is, if Christ has not been raised, useless our preaching, useless your faith. He's really underlining it. My preaching, he says, has nothing to say. And your faith? What faith if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead? But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised, verse 15. He's again stressing this fundamental point which they're not getting. No resurrection, then no risen Christ. For if the dead are not raised, 14, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, number four, your faith is futile. Same idea, useless, empty, of no import. Then also he carries on, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Our believing brothers and sisters who have passed on, there is no hope for them if Christ has not been raised. The consequences of believing this are enormous. And then he goes on, verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, are more to be pitied than all men. Why? Because we have given our life believing in the resurrection, believing in the abundant life 
in life in all its fullness, which we are, have tasted when we were converted and continue to, but we will know in full measure one day, and it's all a lie, we are people to be pitied more than anybody else. So what is leading him to his conclusion with which we began? He gives them a firm basis, verses 1 to 11. That's the gospel and its summary. And now in these verses, it's a resurrection that is real. Is real. One thing I didn't point out, my eye slipped over it. Verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Absolutely fundamental. You remember in chapter 6 and verse 11, when he, the, the Corinthians, many of them had a fairly checkered past morally. Uh, Corinth was a center of immorality and all kinds of hanky-panky. And he said, and such were some of you. That's your background. But now, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of our God. But if Christ is not risen, none of that is true. You are lost in your sins. Wow. Wow. But that's not the story, verse 20. But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. He had worked, described the consequences, I think I counted eight of them, of <clears throat> the consequences of Christ not having been raised. But he says, that's all hypothetical. Christ has been raised. And the consequences of that in the, the following verses, uh, and he uses two pictures. The, the first picture is verse 20. But Christ indeed has, has ra been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits were the offerings which Jews gave of their flocks, of their harvest, indeed, of their sons, an offering to God, a thank offering for his blessings to them. So, what are the most expensive spuds? The early ones. And I haven't seen it in the paper recently, but it used to be uh, there was a rush uh, on the glorious 12th, now I know you put the glorious 12th, or some of you, maybe not Damien, he hasn't been educated yet, but uh, you, you put the glorious 12th into the month of July. But the glorious 12th refers to the month of August. And what does the glorious 12th refer to? The opening of the grouse shooting season. Uh, and that's very important to some of you, I know, yeah. Uh, but but the, the, the grouse 
season opens on the glorious 12th and there's always a competition to see who can get the first poor birds that have been shot by aristocrats down to the Michelin three-star restaurants wherever and that meal costs a fortune. The first fruits. The Jews gave their best, the first fruits to God in an act of gratitude, trusting God to give them the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth fruits. But they didn't keep the first. That went to God. And here Paul is saying is, Christ is the first fruits. And his rising is the guarantee that we will rise. I'm summarizing because of time. His rising is the guarantee, his resurrection of our resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. Uh, Verse 22, Christ the first fruits. And when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. He is the first and then others, his people, will rise in sequence. We could go into that sequence, but again, that's for another day. The other picture he uses is the picture of the last Adam. Elsewhere, he refers to the same idea in the second Adam. And there, what is the thought? We, we see it in verses 21 and 22. Uh, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Again, in a word, what is he saying? He's saying that we as descendants of the first Adam were born in sin and we transmit sin to the next generation. That is the inevitability of the children of Adam. His disobedience goes down the generations. But in Christ, that link is broken. And by his perfect sacrifice, he undoes, undoes, whatever, all of that. That is all undone. He is the second Adam. And then we come to the third point, verses 24 to 28. What is our conclusion? Why do we stand firm? Why are we immovable, abounding? How you can be immovable and abound at the same time shows that these pictures have to be held in tension, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. The firm foundation, the the real resurrection. Thirdly, a sure and certain victory. Verses 24 and following. Then the end will come when he, that is Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority 
and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who has put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying that Christ reigns, and he reigns until he has destroyed all principalities and powers, all the evil powers, the last one to be destroyed is death. And then as the victor comes to the sovereign, he brings his victory and he submits to the sovereign, hands it to the Father. That so that, verse 28, so that God may be all in all so that God will be God. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Oh, he died to save me. Well, that is true. But was that the most fundamental reason why the Lord Jesus died and bore our sins? Here is the fundamental reason that the powers of evil might be destroyed, that his people might be saved, of course, but that God might be God. That's the big picture. That's the big picture. And the resurrection, it points to that. Our Lord's victory over sin, over death, over Satan, a sure and certain victory. And then let's just move quickly because we have to. <clears throat> My last point, verses 50 to 57, when he comes back to carry on this theme of death being defeated. Here we, I, I want to highlight 51 and 52, and the repeated phrase, we will be changed. We will be changed. I declare to you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I've left out uh, the section, verses 25 and following, which re refer to uh, uh, the, the difference between our present body and our resurrected body. And there is a difference, although as Damien was pointing out this morning, there is a, a continuity as well. But there is a difference. Our present body is perishable. And when you get to my age, some of you aren't there, 
and we're delighted that you're here. When you get to my age, the bits don't work as well as they used to. Perishable. But the body that will be raised, imperishable. I feel like shouting hallelujah, but some might think I'm on Pentecostal. So he says, well, then, how does this work? Now, Paul doesn't exactly tell us. <laughs> That's probably because it's impossible for us to understand. But what we can be sure about is we will be changed. Verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Now, normally mystery in the New Testament is a truth which wasn't known but has now been revealed. Well, here he doesn't exactly get to the, to the bottom of it, and that's probably because he can't. No human can. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We're not all going to die before Christ returns again. Some of us will. Some people will not. They will be alive when our Lord returns. That seems to be the, the, the clear teaching here. Uh, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, isn't that wonderful? We will all be changed. The resurrection of the body. I remember as a theological student helping out in a church in Edinburgh, I did some visiting. And I visited this brother and sister in their early 30s who had, I don't know what kind of hereditary disease it was, but they, uh, their, their limbs went, uh, had, be became whatever the adjective is for being gangrene. What's the adjective? Well, never mind, whatever it is. Uh, they, and I remember visiting the girl and over her feet, she had this kind of, you know, the kind of metal thing and, a, and the bedclothes over the top of that. Only it didn't reach the bottom. And where I was sitting, I could see that her, her feet were, there was gangrene. And it's the, it's the only, only occasion in more than 50 years of ministry that anyone has asked me, about the resurrection of the body. Not in a, an intellectual way, please explain the resurrection of the body, but here was a young woman whose body was rotting away. So it was a very important discussion. And I was able to say, and I didn't know very much, I was a theological student, but I said, we will all be changed. Do you feel like shouting hallelujah? You're allowed to. We'll take your name afterwards, but you're, <laughs> you're allowed to. And then, death, the final enemy, is defeated. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Verse 55. Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. 
He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And then we get back to where I started. Therefore, in the light of the sure foundation, the gospel, and the witness of the eyewitnesses to our Lord's death and resurrection, in the light of a real resurrection, a real one that really happened, if it didn't, we're to be more pitied than anyone else in the world, but it did happen. In the light of this sure and certain victory, which our Lord has won over all the evil powers of this world, that God might be all and in all. And in the light of the complete change that every believer of whatever age and whatever physical or mental capability, that we will all be changed. Therefore, he says, my beloved brothers and sisters, stand firm. Don't wobble. Stand firm. Be immovable. But that doesn't mean not moving because you're allowed and you must abound in the work of the Lord. Now, if you're 18, you abound in one way. If you're 88, you abound in another way. But we all are called to abound. Because, and abound in the work of the Lord, because we know that our labor in the Lord, and he's not writing to ministers here. He's not writing to, to Christian workers here. He's writing to every believer here. Your labor in the Lord, your witness in the home, wherever you are, you're living out the Christian life, which many of us find difficult. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful Savior. And what a wonderful promise. Let us pray. We acknowledge, Lord, sometimes our weariness. Few of us are tempted to disbelief in the resurrection intellectually. But Lord, how often do we fail to depend upon its reality and your power working in our lives. Have mercy on us. Have mercy upon us. And help us day by day 
to be firm, to be stable, not to be swayed by the prevailing winds from wherever and to wherever that would blow us off track. Help us to abound as you give us strength in your service with the full realization and confidence that what we do and are, say and think is of value in eternal terms for our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Glory be to your name.